Well, if there's any way you can bring in the uh, a shout out to Dr. Pollack in the podcast, that would be awesome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with Sunshine Susanna Greer. Hey, Dr. Greer. Hello, Joe Cotter. How are you? I, like you, am happy today. 70 degrees and sunny. I could do this day after day after day after day after day. Right. Uh, never been to Germany, Susanna. Never been to San Diego. Never been a world-class ice skater. Never become one of the world's leading experts on viral nanoparticles. Never done groundbreaking work on applying nanotech to cancer therapies in COVID-19. But now I have spoken to someone who's done all those things. It was an absolute honor to speak with Dr. Nicole Steinmetz, professor of nanoengineering. Check this title out, professor of nanoengineering and director of the Center for Nanoimmunoengineering. I like that at the University of California, San Diego, no less. And she's the chief scientific officer and co-founder of a company. Susanna Greer, pretty cool, pretty cool. Yeah, I'm gonna keep this super short because oh, you guys just need to listen. I mean, nanoparticles are the thing, right? So they are these tiny particles that we can manipulate really effectively to allow cells to communicate with each other and inside of a cell and Nicole lays out and just this beautiful strategy of how we use nanoparticles for cancer therapy in lots of different ways. And then specifically, oh my gosh, viral nanoparticles are her jam. So we're gonna learn a lot about them. Hey, Nicole, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's uh, good to be here. Um, how are you? I'm great, I am. I am all about nanoparticles, so I am super excited to talk to you today. So if you're ready, we're going to dive in. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So our listeners should be on the edge of their seats because you literally wrote the book, the textbook, to be, to, you know, to be real, but still the book on nanoparticles. So not everybody is probably as excited about nanoparticles as I am and certainly as you are. Um, so help us understand, what are nanoparticles? Yeah, nanoparticles are incredibly small particles. Um, to be precise, they are about 2,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. Um, so the human hair is still something we can see, obviously, with the naked eye. You go to an object that's 2,000 times smaller, you require a very large microscope to visualize such materials. So why do we care about nanoparticles, particles that are so small? Well, they are incredibly useful in medicine because um, the nanoscale is the scale that our bodies interact with. So if you think of our body, the, we, we consist of cells and cells communicate with, with each other. And they do this through nanoscale structures, um, proteins and receptors on their surface. So because nanoparticles are um, uh, at the same size scale as our body operates, they become very versatile tool, um, become a very versatile tool for nanomedicine. Oh, that's really cool. So, all right. so first of all, this is tiny. So the word nano is appropriate. So 2000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. Okay. So thank you. That's an awesome visual. And I, I love what you said that 
the reason they are so cool is that nanoparticles operate on the levels that our bodies operate. And a lot of times we think of our bodies operating like, oh, I'm going to use my hand to pick up this pencil to, to write this note. But all of those functions of our body are the beginnings of them are very much at the molecular level as cells have to communicate with each other. So it sounds like these nanoparticles are the right size for cells to um, use them in that communication process that then leads to every single function our bodies have. Is that, so is a role in communication an appropriate way to think about them? Yeah, yeah, I think you put it very well. It's the this communication, right? Our cells communicate with each other and they do this through molecular mechanisms. And these are at the nanometer size scale. So say a, a cell that is rapidly dividing, these cells will put up receptors. Uh, these are proteins on the nanometer size scale on their surface to, to take up other nanoscale objects, proteins that will help the cell decide to make a cell division. And so these processes all happen at the nanometer size scale. And as um, engineers, as scientists, we can build on these properties and make a very small object that can bind, for example, to these um, receptors that the cell put up on the surface to kind of sneak into the cell. So you could think of this that if I had a cancer cell that is rapidly dividing, this cell puts out these nanoscale antennas that will help the cell decide to make more copies of itself. Um, so that's bad for the patient. But at the same time, for nanomedicine, we can build on this feature and make a nanoparticle, these small particles, and, and make them um, recognize and bind to these receptors to get inside the cell. And at the same time, when we do this, we load up these nanoparticles with therapeutics to direct these therapies directly into the cancer cell. Oh, okay. Now we're getting to the meat of it. Okay, so let's let's back up just a second and help us to, to think about. So one of the things that you said is that cells use really tiny molecules to have conversations with each other, to communicate inside the cell, and they're at this nanoscale. So tiny, tiny. Now, one thing you said is that we have these nanoparticles that we can engineer to maybe trick a cell in a way. And so would, would a reasonable, meaning trick a cell to say, okay, you've, you've got things of this size that you work with all the time, so we're going to engineer a nanoparticle that, hey, maybe use this instead for communication between cells or within cells. All right, so let me give you an example. Is this a reasonable analogy that if I have a garage and let's say I, I'm not a scientist and I have a Ferrari, so a super awesome <laughs> car parked in my garage and you were to replace that car with let's say a geostorm that was my first car and at the time i thought it was amazing but you were it's not amazing but you were to replace it with a geostorm because it it's similar to the ferrari like the same size it fits in the garage i might be like awesome new car different but it's okay is that similar to the ways that you kind of think about cells thinking about nanoparticles because they're the same size 
shape ish yeah, yeah it's um it's not just the size it's also the the molecular recognition right when you come home in your ferrari um, because you're driving a Ferrari, I assume you have a garage door that locks. Um, so you come home and then you click the button to your garage opener and the door opens and you can drive in. So the nanoparticle that we are designing would be of the same size or very similar size so that it would fit in. But we would also give it the same key so that when I now come in the other car, I have the key to get in, so I have molecular recognition, like in the cell I would need molecular recognition, and in this example I can replace this with the garage opener so I can get in. Okay, now, now we're cooking. So help us understand then, why are these properties so cool and effective, these properties of nanoparticles, so cool and effective when we think about diagnosing cancer and therapeutic approaches to cancer. And you, you talked about it a little bit, but as far as some of the challenges that we have in seeing cancer cells in a patient and targeting therapies, why, why would nanoparticles be potentially really good at this? So there are, so there, there are like two areas. Um, that, that we can maybe touch up on. Um, one area we can get maybe into a little bit later is the cancer immunotherapy, which is yeah. a new new paradigm. But first, um, we can talk about like what is the role for nanoparticles for diagnostic and therapeutic approaches. Okay. So we can start with the diagnostics. It is um, often desired to understand the molecular features of a tumor. So beyond understanding is there a mass within the body you want to understand is that a benign tumor or is that um, is that a tumor that requires treatment right for example take prostate cancer many men will develop prostate cancer but not all the men with prostate um, tumors require treatment there are benign tumors that do not require treatment and you want to stratify who gets treatment and who doesn't because the treatment is very toxic. So if you don't require treatment, it's not something um, you want to pursue. So just measuring there is a mass is not enough information. We need molecular diagnostic tools to understand, is this an aggressive, um, is this an aggressive tumor, uh, or is this a benign tumor? And nanoparticles um, have the ability to get around the body um, in ways um, they're, they're small enough that they can um, navigate circulation, they're small enough that they can get into tissues, and they're small enough to get inside cells and then to communicate or to recognize specific features of a cell. So we could design a nanoparticle to recognize, to have the right key to get into a prostate cancer cell, for example, to have the right garage opener, if you will. And then so how, how can we image these nanoparticles? Well, we can load them up with contrast agents. Um, so for example, MRI is a very, uh, very powerful method um, for, for imaging. But in order to enable MRI, you need a contrast agent, something that's detectable in the scanner. And if you just take a small molecule agent, um, these often don't give us enough contrast to sensitively 
delineate um, disease in vivo. So if you have, say, very small metastatic lesions, um, the small molecule, just the chemical molecule, isn't sufficient to give enough um, contrast. But now imagine you take thousands of these chemicals that we can detect in the MRI scanner and you load them up into one single nanoparticle. So now you have um, these nanoparticles loaded up with the contrast agent and the contrast to noise ratio significantly improves. So this allows us to, to image very small regions and to give um, and to give this molecular specificity, right? We don't want to image all the cells. So if you drive up um, your driveway and you want to know where's the Ferrari parked, I don't want to open all the doors. I just want to open the door where the Ferrari is. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. And I, I think our listeners could understand then a similar paradigm of how nanoparticles would be so useful in therapeutics around loading with something different, right? Loading instead of loading up with thousands and thousands of contrast agents for visibility, loading the nanoparticles with something that would be detrimental to the cell and easy to target to the cancer cell. Yes. Yeah, and that's um, and that is uh, something where, yeah, nanomedicine allows us to deliver these toxic payloads more specifically towards the tumor cells. So increasing the amount of toxic drug that goes specifically to the tumor cell while avoiding exposure to healthy tissues. Right, so if you were super jealous, if you were my neighbor and you were super jealous of my Ferrari, now you can specifically open the garage door and then blow that car up and leave my you know, pickup truck or, or whatever whatever alone. So, ah, these nanoparticles are just amazing. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, a build in seek and destroy mission. All right. So one of your areas of expertise is in viral nano nanoparticles. All right. Adding on top of this tiny structure that has all these amazing capabilities we're adding the word viral to it. So help us understand what are viral nanoparticles? Yeah, so this is an interesting time, I think, to talk about viruses as nanotechnology. We live in a global pandemic and all of us are thinking about viruses a lot. Um, I have been thinking about viruses, so I am thinking about them all the time. And I think of viruses not as pathogens, but I see them as tools, as nanomaterials that we can repurpose for desired functions. And more specifically, um, so viral particles, viral nanoparticles um, have already made headways in medicine. Mammalian viruses, so those that infect uh, humans and animals, have already been repurposed for medical applications. Um, so take AstraZeneca as an example. This is uh, they have developed um, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic a virus-based, uh, based on a mammalian virus, a vaccine uh, for COVID-19. And there are many other examples where mammalian viruses um, are engineered or repurposed um, to to perform a medical function. Mm-hmm. In in our research, um, we are using plant viruses. 
the reason why we're focusing on plant viruses rather than on mammalian viruses, well, I think there's many reasons, but the key reasons are number one, safety. Plant viruses are non-infectious towards humans and animals, and they are much more stable. They have evolved to right, sit around in plants, to be transported around in insects, to sit around in, in dirt. And so we have a very stable material that naturally evolved to be a nanomaterial. Um, viruses, if you measure them, they are nanometer-sized objects. Um, they are also naturally expert at the delivery of cargo. Um, so earlier we talked about uh, designing nanoparticles and loading them up with a payload, with a therapeutic to, to blow up a cancer cell or with a contrast agent to light up a cancer cell. Now, viruses already have a cargo. Um, that's their own genetic information. But as engineers, we can easily replace that. So take out the natural cargo that we are not very interested in and put back a cargo of interest. It could be a contrast agent, it could be a therapeutic, it could be um, RNA to vaccinate people. So we are, yeah, we are taking nature's nanomaterials and giving them a, a different purpose. Interesting. So it, it, it sounds like this, this might be why plant-derived nanoparticles, plant viral vectors are potentially more advantageous than just synthetic nanoparticles because <laughs> these viruses have, have evolved to have all these capabilities that you already want, right? You, you said you have to spend time in the lab thinking about how to direct a nanoparticle to the right cancer cell, how to load it up with some something, some kind of payload. And it, it sounds like maybe the plant virus has already done a lot of this work for us. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot of advantages of plant viruses over the mammalian viruses as well as the synthetic materials. Um, but I also, when I look at the whole library of nanomaterials that are being developed, um, I also don't think there's like one right pathway or one particle that's better than all of the others. I mean, personally, I like to believe the plant viruses are better than all of the other nanoparticles, but um, but looking at this as a scientist and engineer, I think what we need to understand is what is what is the lipid nanoparticle good at and what is the plant virus good at and, and not trying to really engineer them so so much, but rather learn from biology, uh, learn on what these particles naturally interact with, learn what they what they do within the body and then capitalize on these natural properties, maybe enhance them and, and, and build up on, re repurpose rather than engineering from scratch. Ah, what a great segue to immunotherapy, which you mentioned in the very beginning. And I, I really want to dive a little bit into this because this is certainly an area of expertise for you. So just to remind our listeners, when we think about cancer immunotherapy, we are we're doing exactly what you said we should do with nanoparticles and with viral nanoparticles is think about what they already do well and repurpose them. And that's what we're doing with cancer immunotherapy. We're thinking about what the immune system already does in a great way, which is find things in our bodies that are different 
like viruses and bacteria and eliminate them. And so we're trying to repurpose that to help the immune system better detect cancer cells and eliminate them. And just as you mentioned, there's no one right pathway to utilizing nanoparticles. There's also no one right cancer treatment. So immunotherapy doesn't work for every patient. It doesn't work for every cancer, but it is an exciting area. So help us to understand the combination of what I think are two really powerful therapeutic strategies. How are viral nanoparticles used uh, when we think about administering cancer immunotherapies um, to improve these applications? Yeah, so the cancer immunotherapy really interfaces nicely with nanotechnology and it interfaces beautifully with plant virus-based nanotechnologies. And so in, let me start out by saying, how did I get into, like going from plant viruses and nanotechnology, how did I get into cancer immunotherapy? And that was um, uh, back around 2013 or 14, I met uh, Stephen Firing, who's an uh, immunologist uh, focusing on cancer research at uh, Dartmouth College. And um, I, I met him then and we, we chatted about using the plant viruses in, uh, in, in the area of cancer therapy, which I had been working on. And from him, I learned a lot about cancer immunology. We started collaborating and um, we have together, we have developed this very effective cancer immunotherapy using a plant virus as our, as our platform technology, as our tool. So, so how does it work? The idea is a very simple one, and it's based on the fact that our the patient's own immune system can recognize and eliminate tumors. So if the immune system is fully functional, um, the problem is that cancers will turn off the immune system. I'll get to that in, in just a second. So if the immune system is fully active, fully functional, immune cells will recognize tumor cells and, and eliminate them. So what happens, a tumor grows in a patient and the tumor cell will eventually undergo cell death. Um, and that happens for all sorts of reasons. A tumor cell runs out of nutrients, runs out of space, runs out of oxygen. So this cell dies. When there are cells dying within our body, we have immune cells sitting within our tissues and they will sample the contents of dead cells. So they eat up the dead cell and, and just make sure everything looks normal. When they eat a cancer cell, they will realize something is not normal. There's proteins that shouldn't be there or there's more of one protein than another. There's a mutated protein. Something isn't quite right. Then this immune cell will get alarmed and it will traffic to the lymph nodes to talk to other immune cells. And that happens on these molecular levels and will tell this other immune cell, which is from the adaptive immune system, here, look at this signature. I took this from a tumor cell. If you find anything with this signature, with this um, molecular feature, engage and, and, and kill the cell. So these are the cytotoxic T, killer cell, T cells, killer cells, that patrol our body and will specifically engage and kill tumor cells. Um, this is a whole cycle of events um, that happens there. It's called the cancer immunity cycle. 
brain, it's a beautiful system. It's our own immune system fighting a tumor. However, um, the tumor will fight the immune system. The tumor will shut out immune cells or the immune cells that come into the tumor, it will kind of silence them. The tumor cell has signals that will tell the immune cell, kill me not. And the immune cell will let go. <laughs> so, so the so this is sort of the, the underlying problem. Now the idea that we had, and we call this an in situ vaccination, the idea here is we take a plant virus and inject it directly into a tumor. And the idea here is the plant virus is immunogenic. It's, um, it's something that's being recognized by the body as foreign. It's, um, it's non-infectious, yet it has all sort of the bells and whistles that fire up the immune system. So the, the cells that are sitting within, also within the tumor tissue, um, they are silenced by the tumor, but now they get activated because they see a plant virus. Um, so they start processing these plant viruses and they recruit more, more immune cells within this tumor. And that kind of flips the switch to turn back on the cancer immunity cycle. And I feel like I said a lot and I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, first I was going to say the, the best day in your life was probably meeting that immunologist. No, you know, as Joe knows. I love immunologists because I am one. And you summarized basically what I would use to teach in about a year of cancer immunology in two minutes. So I think you did an amazing job. Um, the bottom line is that we don't, we don't think about it very often, those of us who are fortunate enough to be healthy and not have cancer, that our immune systems are constantly recognizing cancer cells and eliminating them. We only think about it when the process doesn't work, when a cancer forms. And you're, you're, you summarized it beautifully, that it is a silencing of our natural immune response by tumors. And so it's kind of a trick, right? The immune system is tricked by tumors. And so what you and your colleagues are doing is tricking back, right? Tricking the tumor back to say, hey, uh, this actually is a really bad thing to the immune system and putting it back on high alert. So what a beautiful kind of catch-22 you're playing. I love it. Yeah, it's like the tumor is tricking the immune system to let go, and then we're providing it with a switch to just flip back this cancer immunity cycle and turn back on the immune system. All right, so that being said, how then do you think kind of in, in your best and wildest dreams, could these viral nanoparticles change the impact then of a cancer immunotherapy? So the so let me start out just by saying something about uh, checkpoint therapy, which is um, the cancer immunotherapy where we've heard many success stories. But checkpoint therapies, just like chemotherapy, are not very specific. So there's off-target effects that occur. And a checkpoint inhibitor essentially takes the breaks off of T cells. So all our immune system, um, to, keep us, to keep the immune system in check, um, has um, checkpoints and uh, has um, mechanisms to regulate the activity of T cells. We don't want to have hyperactive T cells. So there's breaks on the T cells 
not to engage um, and kill off healthy cells. So when we give a checkpoint therapy, we're essentially removing the breaks of T cells. And we're removing the breaks of some of these T cells that will target the tumor, but other T cells may target healthy tissue. So that's causing adverse side effects. Now, our plant virus nano nanoparticle nicely synergizes with the checkpoint therapy because we are hitting on this cancer immunity cycle. And at the end of the cycle, we are expanding the pool of tumor-specific T cells. So the number of tumor-specific cells is higher. So when we now take off the breaks, we have more specificity and therefore higher efficacy against the tumor. Ah, what a beautiful explanation. So it, it sounds like once the double trick has occurred, right, the, the tumor has suppressed the immune system, and then you go back and say, actually, immune system, this really is a big deal. This is a tumor, something that is foreign and should be recognized so that the immune system is expanding in a specific way. And then, as you said, we have these amazing checkpoint therapies that can then kind of further release any breaks on the immune system. But the cells, the immune cells that would respond abundantly would be the ones that had been activated um, that could respond very specifically to the tumor and hopefully reduce side effects that, that we see in lots and lots of immunotherapies. So ah, what, a, what a really wonderful approach. Yeah, and it's, um, right, if you think of it, it's so simple too. Um, one point I, I want to make is um, the, so if we have a patient, most patients have metastatic disease, right? We, we don't need to treat all the sites. We just need to treat one injectable tumor um, because it's a, it's a local treatment with a systemic effect. So we locally treat to reactivate the immune system in that tumor but the response is going to be a systemic one. So if we treat this local tumor, metastatic sites will also benefit from this treatment. We're so excited, Nicole, for the work that you're doing. And I, I don't think I can let you go without at least giving a nod to the place that we are in this pandemic. And I, I really appreciated what you said at the beginning of the podcast, which is that everybody on the planet thinks about viruses now because of COVID-19 perhaps in a different way. And you said that, you know, you really think of viruses as a tool and you've given us some just beautiful illustrations of how we can use viruses to enhance cancer therapies and specifically immunotherapies. So I'd, I'd love to know, are there nanotechnology approaches that have been applied in, in the current pandemic? So to, to thinking about COVID-19 vaccine development. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, as, as devastating as this pandemic is, the, it, it has highlighted the power of nanotechnology. And nanotechnologies are platform technologies. And, and platform technologies are generally technologies, like plug, that, that, that um, um, platform technologies are plug and play technologies that can be easily pivoted from one application to another. And earlier in this conversation, we talked about cancer imaging and then repurposing the same particle, but um, loading it with a therapy and then doing cancer therapy. So quickly pivoting the same nanoparticle design to load it with contrast agents, 
to image disease and then take the same particle loader with a therapy for treatment. Right. And we can, um, yeah, and we can do this going from treatment of cancer to COVID-19 or to the, from the development of vaccines and mRNA vaccines, for example, targeting one disease and then quickly pivoting the technology towards applications in COVID-19. And, and we have seen this with uh, Moderna, Pfizer and, and other companies. They were extremely quick to respond because the technologies that now are, uh, are approved in the COVID-19 vaccines, they were already undergoing many years of development and clinical testing. Obviously not with the mRNA encoding the spike protein, but when, when March hit and everybody was sent home, these companies could act very quickly and synthesize an mRNA um, that encodes the spike protein loaded into their already validated nanotechnology and begin testing. So I'd love to know, is there an, a role that your lab has played in these efforts in the pandemic? Yeah, we, we also, when, when we were sent home in March, I think like any scientist engineer around the world, uh, we started thinking about COVID-19 and w whether we have approaches and technologies that we can apply uh, to make a difference. So we, we started the development of COVID-19 vaccine candidates um, where we're repurposing the plant virus-based nanotechnology that we've been developing for cancer treatment, now repurposing it for COVID-19 vaccines. And what we've done over the last year is to develop a multivalent uh, vaccine, so a cocktail. We've now validated that these vaccine candidates elicit antibodies that are neutralizing SARS-CoV-2. And to bring this to the next level, um, the plant virus-based platform that we're using here is extremely stable and it's stable to a lot of temperatures. So this technology doesn't rely on um, ultra-low freezers and the cold chain to be uh, transported or stored. Um, but because also these particles are so stable, we've made use of um, hot melt extrusion techniques to encapsulate these um, vaccine candidates into polymer scaffolds, and we made microneedle patches. So the idea then is now we have a microneedle patch that can deliver COVID-19 vaccine that we could ship at room temperature around the world to people's homes. And in your own home, you don't even need to see a doctor. You can apply this like a bandage um, to get the vaccine. Uh, Nicole, that's incredible. And when we think about distribution of this vaccine worldwide, it's going to require so many different vaccine candidates and platform technologies. So this is just ah, really wonderful to hear. Yeah, th thank you. And I think the, right whether we are going to make an impact on COVID-19, I don't know. Right, There's a lot of vaccines uh, that are being rolled out now that are much further along in clinical testing. Uh, we are in the preclinical phase at this point, but we are eager to move this along to get it into clinical testing. And I want to go back to the point that this is a platform technology, right? If we, if we can make an impact on COVID-19, maybe wh whatever the next strain is, whatever the next mutant is, whatever right virus X is going to hit us in the future. So this is kind of how I see our contribution to, to this current pandemic that um, we, we've developed a, a technology that hopefully 
will make an impact in, in the in the near future. Yeah, I think um, this certainly won't be our last go round with a with a new pathogen. So how um, just wonderful to think that we'll be better prepared and, as you said, able to pivot much more quickly. So best of luck and uh, congratulations to you and your team. Before I let you go, I'd really love to know if the American Cancer Society and the grant support that you've received from the ACS, um, if that support has impacted your research. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, yeah, the, the, the approach for the American Cancer Society to allow junior investigators to compete for grant funding is, uh, is absolutely amazing. Um, when I wrote my first grant, and I think any PI will, will agree to these statements, right, you're competing with junior faculty, but you're competing with senior investigators, with people who have data generated over 10 years, over 20 years, over 30 years, right? And there you are in your first couple of years. Uh, maybe you have a couple of graduate students and a postdoc in the lab. And, and data accumulated over one year or two years. So it's extremely hard to, to be really competitive. The other thing is, and in, in, in when I applied for grants, I've, I can't tell you how often I've received the comment that a weakness is that the PI has not yet won a major research grant. Well, I was writing them, but it, it's difficult to kind of break in. So then when, when I received the ACS uh, Research Scholar Award, um, which was, wasn't my first major grant, but it was one of my first major grants, it, it really made a difference because it's once you can put on your CV that you have one or two major grants, then getting the other major grants becomes much easier because you're already validated. All right, Nicole, last question. Many of our listeners are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers. Is there a message you would like to share with this group? Yeah, I, I think I want to say I like, never give up and trust in the progress of science. Um, these days, right, we, we ask Dr. Google, we ask the Dr. Facebook um, about treatments and um, understanding disease. Um, but I think um, it's important that we trust uh, the scientists and engineers at the bench making these new discoveries and um, ask your doctor, not the social media for information. With the discovery of cancer immunotherapy and the, the improved understanding of cancer immunology, there's a lot of potential that we, we, have, um, we have already seen and in, in the way we treat cancer patients. But I think we are also at a very interesting point now where we have new technologies, in particular nanotechnologies, um, entering the field of cancer immunology and cancer immunotherapy. And I think this, um, we've seen this over the last couple of years, an explosion in, 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 in research and papers and patents being filed and new clinical trials started where new nanotechnologies know interfacing with cancer immunotherapy approaches. And I think it's an absolutely, absolutely fascinating area to be working in. And, um, and I think there's a huge potential. So there's hope. Don't give up. Thank you so much, Nicole. I couldn't have said it better. There is so much on the horizon and we are incredibly grateful you're part of the ACS family. So best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you. And it was great to be here. All right. So that was Dr. Nicole Steinmetz and that was awesome. She talked a lot of science, but we also asked her to stick around 
for a couple of quick bonus questions about Germany, about surfing, whales, and her favorite teacher. First of all, my daughter has been studying German since fourth grade, and she really wants to know what part of Germany you're from. Oh, I'm from Essen, uh, which is nearby Cologne and Düsseldorf. So what is the, the best hiking spot in that area? Oh, um, that I don't know. Like, I grew up being a figure skater, so I've only really seen the roller and ice skating rings. Um, there is a, so there is a big lake. Um, I don't, like, when I think about hiking, I always think about mountains, and there aren't really many mountains. But there's it doesn't a, have to be mountains. Yeah, yeah, there's um, there's a lake. It's called the Baldenai Sea, uh, Baldenai Lake, I guess. Um, that, that's something uh, I grew up with a dog where I would go and like walk, walk the dog. It's a very beautiful area. So I could ask you about all your figure skating experiences. I'm so curious, but I don't want to detract from your science and we don't have all day. But now you're in San Diego by the ocean. Surely you surf. So mm -hmm. tell me your favorite surfing memory i don't think i can nail it down to one memory you, like got, when you, you gotta you gotta nail it down to one you know yeah. you someday you're gonna have a grandkid and the oceans all be all dried up we'll be living on mars yeah. and you're gonna have to tell them about the one time that you surf so I, I don't know is it like well there was one time uh so the memory that always comes up is when i kissed the surfboard or the surfboard kissed me and then seven stitches later um <laughs> <laughs> I, I have uh, I still have the full market value, but the surfboard has a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but there was one time we were in Mexico, somewhere in Mexico, and there was a, a bay that we were surfing in, and then a couple of whales came in, and they were so close to us, and they were just kind of chilling. They were they were taking a break from from their migration and it was like at first you get scared right the being in the water was like they were maybe 20 meters away from us was a very large sea animal is um and you're sitting on your surfboard is like in the beginning it's a bit stressful um but then like we realized that they're just they're taking a break they're just kind of playing in the water for a little bit and then continuing with their migration so yeah that, that was definitely the they're best just day. checking you out too maybe yeah, yeah. They were like saying, what are these people doing with their weird looking boards? <laughs> so, so who's the best teacher you ever had? Even going back to grade school, who's the one that stands yeah. out? So it's funny that you asked that. I, it was, I did a, an interview with a German radio station um, a couple of weeks ago. And I, the, my favorite teacher was my biology teacher, um, uh, Frau, Frau Dr. Pollack. Um, she... Um, yeah, I always, uh, yeah, enjoyed, uh, yeah, just enjoyed the subject and she taught it well and um, I went on to study biology. Shout out to Frau Dr. Pollack. Say that again. Uh, Frau Dr. Pollack. There we go. Yeah. 